You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, Father Bill. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? Very well, thanks. And you? I can't complain at all. Christmas time is approaching. Always makes me happy. Uh, let me let me introduce this and explain the relevance of that to the conversation we're about to have. I'm I'm Robert Wright. This is uh, the Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You are Father William Daly. Uh, you are maybe not at the moment at the University of Notre Dame, but that is your home. You and, and tell me, I know you have taught at the law school there. Are you right. teaching at the law school now? Not at present. I'm trying to write a book and I run a residence hall. So I used to be a lecturer in law and run a residence hall. And I had to give one of those two up in my view to try and get a book written. And uh, I didn't want to give up the residence hall ministry, which comes as a surprise to me, but I still pay attention to the law and uh, try and read it. And someday I may go back to teaching jurisprudence and legal ethics. Those are the main things that I taught. So, And your book is on? The book is, I mean, I say it's on faith and reason, though I don't intend for that to be on the title or the cover, but that's a shorthand. So the plausibility of religious belief in the 21st century, something Ah. many, many people have written on, but there's always room for one more. Absolutely. Um, So uh, as people may have gathered, uh, you're a man of the cloth. People who are watching as opposed to just listening may have noticed that you have a clerical uh, collar on and that I called you father. All of which suggests that you're a priest, um, which is true. And so uh, one thing that's going on here is I thought, well, Christmas is approaching. How about if I had a Christian on the show? That's just shows you, you know, my my programming uh, acumen. Just these are the kinds of incredibly creative ideas I have. Christian on on Christmas. Uh, But but I got to say, you know, uh, there was a more immediate uh, kind of trigger for the idea. I want to tell you what it is uh, in one second. First, I want to say that that the overall idea of this conversation is, you know, to ask, uh, talk about what a Chris, uh, Christmas means to a Christian, at least one Christian. Uh, and but to try to do that in a way that would be of interest to, to people who aren't Christians, whether of other faiths or, or secular or, or or whatever. That that is. That is uh, the challenge uh, I, have, I have set for us. But now let me tell you what the immediate inspiration for this idea was. There was a tweet by Chris Hayes, a uh, famous MSNBC host. I think maybe you've been on his show or something. Uh, uh, yeah. Yes. And uh, it, the tweet said, would be cool to wake up one day and there's just a huge new unexpected bit of incredibly good news. You quote tweeted that and you added uh, and you put your tweet in quotes, the thing you added, the question, what is Christmas question mark? Now, when I read that, so, you know, that's kind of funny. I thought some people may think that what you mean by that is, you know, Christmas brings unexpected good news. You wake up, there's presents under the under the tree. That's good news. But I also thought having some conversancy uh, in, in Christianity myself, that I believe, you know, he, Chris had used the term good news. I believe the word gospel literally means good news or something like that. That's right, yeah. Yeah, so I thought to, a, uh, to Father Bill, uh, he may be thinking of the good news of the birth of Jesus as a number of Christians might on Christmas. Um, and that led to the idea of uh, talking to you about 
exactly um, exactly what kinds of things are called to mind uh, for Christians by the birth of Jesus. I mean, there there is at least one other very important Christian holiday. That's Easter. Uh, that may have different resonances. I don't know, uh, but I wanted to um, I wanted to start out by asking you that that question uh, because you know I have my own associations and maybe I should give people my background. I was brought up Southern Baptist. I no longer am, uh, but uh, Christmas is still very special to me, and I, I have my own kind of set of ideas that I associate with it. And I I, w- I wanted to do a little bit of compare and contrast with you for starters. What what are your fundamental associations with Christmas? My fundamental associations with Christmas are Easter <laughs> uh, <laughs> now and uh, Adam and Eve, right? So um, uh, That's you, a lot. You, you, you mentioned in our earlier um, uh, exchange on email that, that peace is something you're going to want to talk about. And that certainly makes sense. And I could talk about sort of why that would make sense. But of course, anything as rich as Christmas or as the Christian story or any of the two major Christian feasts, and surely Easter, as you have already mentioned, and, and Christmas are the two major Christian feasts, have to encapsulate in some sense the whole story. And that's always a story beyond any person's telling or any single dimension. Right now, I suppose, because I've become more theologically educated, I hope, in 20 years as a priest and in the six years of training leading to becoming a priest, I've I've come to think for a long time that you can't think of Christmas without Easter. And so I, I don't separate the two, but unite them. And then they immediately point back to that primordial alienation that the Adam and Eve story speak to for, for I believe, Jews and Christians alike, and I suppose uh, Muslims who pay attention to that book as well as, as the Quran, though I can speak least, even though I'm uh, both rooms that I've considered doing this from, I'm staying at my sister's in Columbus, Ohio. Her husband is a Moroccan Muslim. Hmm. And so I had behind me in the in the room, which, which we're not using because the internet connection wasn't as good. I had to ask him, in case you might have asked, What's the Arabic on the wall? And it's the classic phrases that one would associate with kind of Islamic evangelizing, right? God is one and there is no God but God. This is just an open gate. I don't know if it's typical of Muslim artwork or something, but it's something he's had on his wall. And he actually does a lot of video coaching of people. And he says it's the most significant thing he's ever seen. So that's just to say, uh, even though I'm staying with my Muslim brother-in-law, whom I love, I don't know what they make of of the Adam and Eve part of the story, but we, we might for, just, for me, that's all connected. Can I just interject? Because some people may not realize this. The Quran has some very nice things to say about Jesus. It, 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 yeah. uh, it, you know, it, it's clear that uh, Muhammad was speaking uh, to a diverse audience that included Jews and, and Christians. And uh, I, I, as I recall, the Quran balks at the notion of the Trinity, but otherwise is uh, has a very favorable view of Jesus. Sorry, just had to add that. Yeah. Uh, at the Dome of the Rock, I, I visited uh, the Holy Land. I've, I've been there a couple of times and hope to get there again in March as part of a pilgrimage of students. And I had no idea what the Dome of the Rock was until as a seminarian, I visited on, as part of what was mostly a Protestant pilgrimage, which was interesting in its own way. But um, Dome of the Rock is filled with sort of high-level theological insults at Christians that, you know, the, the notion of the Trinity is crazy and so forth. And of course, there's there are good reasons, there are good arguments that the notion of the Trinity is crazy. A number of people so. have raised questions <laughs> about the doctrine of the Trinity, but we that's right. We we may may not have time to get into that, although who knows, we may. So anyway, I interrupted you. Uh no problem. Proceed. Well, I mean, I mean, I think we're probably there. Why don't you talk about well, um your your 
sense of Christmas. I was saying for me, it's Easter and it's the very beginning, the primordial sense of alienation from God. Uh, okay. Okay. So it's sense. the alienation from God you were uh, associated with associating with Adam and Eve, I, I was going to think and maybe uh, to suggest that, and maybe this is related to the alienation. I, I was I immediately assumed you were talking about the moment at which uh, the burden of sin, according to Christianity, entered the human lineage, you know, the the, the fall of man and mm-hmm. the notion of, of original sin, uh, because you know, the good news, I, I looked up uh, a little bit of scripture in preparation for this, and and the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, uh, pretty concisely sums up apparently what, uh, what is supposed to be important here. Uh, the angel visits uh, Joseph and reassures him, you know, about this whole this strange kind of virgin birth business and says, uh, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Uh, That is, I can go on to explain how that's maybe forgiveness for sin isn't maybe my primary association with Christmas, but that is, according to Christianity, the the fundamental good news uh, embodied in Jesus. Is that uh, fair? Yes. I mean, again, I I don't think anything can be reduced to a single formulation. If you had to pick one, that's in the set of reasonable single sentence formulations or or conceptual formulations of what the incarnation means. Um, So the incarnation for your British listeners, um, which makes no sense when using the word incarnation, but the incarnation for those who haven't thought about the theological term simply means God becoming flesh, right? And which is from John's gospel uh, prologue, right? The word became flesh, the Mm -hmm. word, the logos, Jesus, mm-hmm. the Son of God, preexistent to Christmas, uh, became flesh and dwelt among us, right? And yes, there is also the tradition from the New Testament epistles that sin came into the world through one man and salvation comes. So Mary, who by the our belief as Catholics in the in her immaculate conception, she was spared the stain of original sin so that she could give birth to Jesus, who saves us from the sin that came in by the one man, Adam. So there is that association. I was thinking more of like, get out of the garden, or even before that, hiding in the bushes, right? To me, the, the, the story I go back to a lot of my own spirituality, because I am a sinner and I mess up, and our mm. fundamental attitude toward What's God that like? is- What's that like, being a <laughs> sinner? Uh, that'll be a, a story for another podcast. Okay. So, uh, or, or private. But um, the I love the idea of this very human story, right? Adam and Eve- Obviously, God is coming to walk with them in the cool of the evening, it says, which is something he must be used to doing. And they have to know he made them so that there's some subordinate relationship here. But they still think hiding in the bushes is like a good thing. Whatever one thinks of the literal historical truth, it's a it's an ingenious psychological insight, because foolishly, when we have messed up, even in our relations with one another, the tendency toward denial and avoidance and and fear is is just, I don't know, for me, it's a fundamental part of my makeup and trying to become redeemed of that, to be brought back into one who feels one can walk in the cool of evening with God, which means no longer feeling ashamed, feeling forgiven, feeling uh, uh, reconciled, right? A key term. So uh, the arrival of Jesus on the scene as a baby, as a physical human being, um, makes that Easter that, that cross possible, and that makes Easter possible, right? So the 
Good Friday, what could also be said to be the preeminent day, right? St. Paul says, uh, and, and I, I don't want to get overly theological, uh, or at least get ahead of you, but, you know, St. Paul says this phrase that, that gets quoted a lot, he has many, but uh, that we preach uh, the cross, which is a stumbling block to Jews and a, and a folly to Greeks. And people think this means a variety of things over the years. Uh, one of the reasons it would be a stumbling block to Jews is uh, if you look in Jew, Jewish commentators, respectfully speaking of the Christian tradition, and my best friend in high school used to emphasize this to me a lot. He went to my Catholic high school. He's Jewish and reasonably educated within his faith. And he used to say, what you believe that God could become human is so completely foreign to anything a Jew believes about God. It's completely insane. And, and that's, that's what the stumbling block means. It's also been said that uh, even if you were somehow to bracket the question of the impossibility of incarnation within the Jewish faith, the fact of dying ignominiously and on the cross reflects what would be a cursed death in the Old Testament. And that, of course, adds. But, you know, those are sort of, it seems to me, dimensions of the same problem. How is it that the God who is infinite can become uh, uh, not just finite, but appear as defenseless, as a baby in a manger? And so the Christmas story, in its gentle way, the way that we think of as, as uh, you know, a part of artwork and, uh, and coziness, uh, which of course it isn't in Matthew's gospel, right? In Matthew's gospel, Jesus's life is threatened from the start. Luke's gospel is is a is a warmer gospel of by Magnificat King, in there. Threatened by, by King, King Herod. Herod. That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which reminds me, I, I bounced off uh, some uh, law school colleagues of mine. I said, "Hey, what are your associations with Christmas?" I've got this conversation the afternoon this afternoon. They chose to go the humorous route. I won't give all of their quotations, but one <laughs> of them said, "I think of Jean, Jesus owning uh, the lib Herod." So. Um, <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so the, the, um, let's talk briefly about Easter before we get back to Christmas, because that is, that is the day. Well, I, I guess good Friday, strictly speaking, the day I would have more associated with forgiveness from sin. Mm -hmm. Um, because the idea is that, uh, Christ suffered on the cross, uh, to, uh, as a way of paying on our behalf for our sins, uh, uh, you know, redemption, uh, almost like a literal, you know, uh, yeah. redemption as a payment. And, uh, you, you know, uh, you, you mentioned uh, that that this is was kind of a strange notion at the time in the in the Hebrew Bible. The the, the Messiah is. I think anticipated as a a worldly rule. A king, a great king, not someone who's going to, as you said, die an ignominious death. Right. But in Christian theology, this, you know, this winds up happening to somebody uh, who was con who was apparently in his lifetime considered by some the Messiah, and uh, and Christians uh, Christians take this to be uh, the best news possible, I guess, from their point of view that that they can be uh, liberated from the burden of sin. Have everlasting life, uh, and and so on. I, I want to quickly ask you about a distinctively Catholic take on this. I have heard, at least, that Catholics more than Protestants focus on Christ's suffering on the cross. I don't know if that's accurate. You heard this back when this Mel Gibson movie came out about the crucifixion, mm -hmm. uh, and of course he's, uh, I mean, a Catholic, but also I gather he's part of a specific. Uh, somewhat eccentric Catholic sect or something. I, I, if I've got that right, I don't know. But correct me if I say anything. He, he may be a, 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 an eccentric sect unto himself, but yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> yes, well, he has his, uh, yes, he has various 
eccentricities. But there was a huge amount of, of focus in the movie on the on the suffering of Jesus. And uh, is that is it accurate that uh, Catholics focus more on that part of uh, of redemption than Protestants in your experience? I've been Catholic all of my life. I was always taught, and I've I've had Protestant friends who've never strongly objected when this comparison is made, as you've made it, and you came from a Protestant tradition, so you you could speak better than I. I've always been taught that that's why we always have a crucifix, which has the corpus on it, as opposed to a cross, which does not. That Protestant theology tends to emphasize uh, Christologically the I, I guess the the resurrection, uh, the empty cross. Mm-hmm. and the empty tomb, which is Easter, more than the suffering of Good Friday. Now, these things are all very cultural, right? There was Baroque spirituality, and, the, and those are the bloodier representations often from Spain that you see in the history of Christian iconography and artwork. Um, there's the sense that Irish Catholics like me are focused on you know, a doer spirituality that's influenced by Jansenism and, and so forth. And so there may be different times and places where people focus more on suffering, but certainly the Catholic tradition does emphasize the crucifix and the, the necessity of, um, and the redemptive nature of human suffering. It's not something we fear. And, uh, and we do see that, um, as that Good Friday is inseparable from Easter in, in, equal part to the way that Christmas is inseparable from Easter. He had to die. Yes. Mm-hmm. And different theologians have talked about whether that was atonement and, and in some kind of cosmic mathematical sense, right? That's one of the more popular theories from Cordeus Homo, I believe, right? That the human being, whenever uh, she sins, incurs debt. So like, cause all we're supposed to do is praise and good. And anytime I don't praise and good, I've fallen behind. Mm-hmm. And I can't catch up because by praising and doing good, I'm just doing what I was supposed to be doing at that moment. So we've built up this debt that can never be recovered. But here's the perfect and innocent person and the infinite person. And so his suffering and death is the unique metaphysically possible uh, act of redemption that can make up for this infinite debt that's often been called in, a, in our uh, tradition. Um, so that's what that's a way, certainly, that the Catholic tradition has thought about uh, suffering and the suffering of Christ, and and as a matter of spirituality and art and atmosphere, I, it has been said that that's a contrast with Protestantism. I haven't studied Protestantism enough, uh, nor experienced it enough, to know how real that that is. Well, I think there's a huge amount of variation within Protestantism uh, itself. Uh, I'm sure my my Southern Baptist upbringing uh, wasn't exactly like, say, an Episcopalian upbringing. Um, the uh, the the idea was. Uh, and, and one one last thing I'll ask you about in this, uh, so far as uh, forgiveness goes, is the question of uh, what is required to earn everlasting life and and you might say enduring in that sense forgiveness. Um, we were taught, of course, you know, this was back. Uh, this was long enough ago when I was, you know, a kid back in the '60s that uh, I think the Christianity was a little less. Uh, ecumenical uh, uh, than it is. I mean, within Christianity, uh, I, I, I felt a certain amount of tension. I mean, it was it was kind of uh, mildly scandalous when one of our rel- Baptist relatives was going to, uh, in fact, it was my sister <laughs> was going to marry a Catholic. Scandalous is too strong a word, but there wasn't as much of a sense then 
among Christians that, hey, we're all in this together. I think because they didn't feel as besieged by atheists and things, maybe. Who knows? But uh, for for whatever reason, well, anyway. They, they didn't have Donald Trump to unite them. They didn't have Donald Trump to unite them. That's right. Uh, all we had was communists. Um, the uh, <laughs> Although, I mean, many of them think he united them as like, we're all we're all together on, on his side. I'm not on that. Bandwagon. Yeah, yeah, there are there there is an intra-Christian division on that very question, yeah. isn't there? Um the uh but anyway, so uh yes among the unflattering things we used to say that were said about Catholics, one was that oh, it's all ritual, you know, we are about belief, and and one manifestation of that is they get uh you know just baptized as a matter of course when they're born. And then they're saved. What kind of deal? You know, we we wait until people can make up their mind to accept Jesus as their savior. They decide to be baptized. Then they're saved. OK, right. how do you accept that challenge that? Uh, I, but I don't think you can really believe that as a Protestant either. Right. Is it the case that baptism and you're done? I mean, if you're baptized on your deathbed, right, it was Constantine who had the best deal. He waited until the very end and gave all this institutional <laughs> yeah. support to Christianity, but lived his pagan life and then timed it well. Mm-hmm. And as far as we know, you know, he'd have, he'd have enjoyed the fruits of baptism without much time to screw it up. But certainly we believe that baptism cleanses one from original state of original sin. It introduces one, in, incorporates one into the body of Christ and into uh, the Holy Spirit, but you still have it within you to mess that up. Yeah. So you're not saved by virtue of baptism in the sense that all the work here is finished. Yeah. So. But, but let me ask you, what would you say is the Catholic understanding of the prerequisite for salvation? W- with the way we always put it was you have to accept Christ as your savior. Um, right. What, how would a Catholic put it? Uh, gosh, you're going to expose me as a liberal here. I think what I am permitted to say, and one should, I hope, be in in favor of giving the most capacious possible answer to such a question uh that that seems like good for everyone um including the speaker that and the second vatican council we clarified right. so there was right. there was a kind of catholic fundamentalism leading up to the council you remember uh father coglin and so forth no salvation outside the church i'd say most of us in mainstream catholicism view the second vatican council this reforming event in the 1960s as clarifying what certainly seemed to have been true in the early church, where a theologian like Origen hoped for the salvation of all, right? Mm-hmm. And so Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The Catholic Church believes that that's true. How God determines your relationship mm-hmm. with the way, the truth, and the life is not for me to judge. Mm-hmm. So if a person asks me the way to salvation, I'm going to say, as a Catholic priest, I'm, I'm walking on the way. Walk this way with me. Let me introduce you to Jesus. I also believe that um, in the early church, right, we know Justin Martyr said that uh, Socrates, who was born before Christ, had the logos. He had the word. Mm-hmm. So there's a sense of can one be configured to Christ without knowing it or saying it explicitly? I believe the documents of the Second Vatican Council teach us, yes, they can. And so I think that I don't tarry over the salvation of people who don't name Christ as their savior because uh, that is. Uh, literally above my pay grade, but it seems possible that a person might be, uh, you know, there is a phrase from Augustine that people say gets abused by liberals in the church, but nevertheless, it is a phrase from Augustine that there are many whom God has whom the church does not, and many whom the church has whom God does not. Okay. Um, And I guess I won't press you further and say, well, 
if we are talking about people totally outside the church, and I think even Billy Graham in his more liberal moment suggested that who is he to say that a, that a Buddhist couldn't be saved? But but uh, if we are talking about those people, uh, I, I, I guess I won't press you to tell us what they would have to do. Of course, if you believe in universal salvation, which I think the Second Vatican left open, right? Then the idea is everyone is saved, but maybe it didn't leave that open. I don't know. I, um, I you know, there's a growing debate about this right now. There's a, a, a an Orthodox theologian who's often at Notre Dame, David Bentley Hart, and I've, I've had him on the show. I encourage. Yeah, you so David Google. Bentley Hart is is an advocate of that, and there are. Uh, Catholic and other Christians who have said that that is, in fact, that goes too far. What we can say is that the church does not teach that there is any particular number of people in hell, nor any particular person in hell. Mm -hmm. So if, if there is, uh, so there's not a lot of space between believing in universal salvation or believing it's possible and saying, I don't have to believe that any particular person, even Adolf Hitler, right, is in hell, it's possible that something happened as he was facing his death by suicide that um, uh, uh, that, that led to, you know, even his repentance, or people wonder this about Judas, right, uh, said mm -hmm. it was better for him that he was never been born, but it may be because his anguish was greater than human being had ever known, but even so, maybe he was safe. Those, I do believe, are possible theological positions, though, though it is a the dispute among theologians whether one is allowed to formulate it as we may hope in universal salvation, if, if that hair splitting makes a difference. Okay. So as for values we might associate with Christmas, uh, as I said, the first thing I would have thought of wouldn't have been forgiveness. Uh, I can think of two other candidates. One of them is, is peace on earth. And, uh, and, but, but, you know, I, began wondering at some point when, when I said this to my, uh, you know, my friend of me, Mickey Kaus, whom you're familiar with, um, mm -hmm. uh, that I associate Chris, Christmas with the aspiration to have, uh, you know, enduring peace on earth. He was kind of surprised and it made me wonder, well, where did I get that idea? Uh, now, I can certainly think of Christmas carols, uh, although the first the first line that comes to mind actually also mentions uh forgiveness in a sense, or alludes to it. It's, a, it's in Hark the Herald Angels Sing, I think. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled, which is an allusion to uh, forgiveness. Still, there is a lot of peace on earth stuff in Christmas carols. And certainly, uh, you know, if you take uh, the New Testament as a whole uh, and, and the Gospels as a whole, you can, you can uh, have no, no trouble at all associating that ideal with Jesus. But um, Am I, do you think I'm unusual in, in, well, let me ask you, is that, do you think of that as kind of a modern secular development or, or what? No, I mean, may, maybe choosing to emphasize it could be seen as such, but no, it's, it's there in the scripture, right? The, the shepherds are told this mess, glad tidings of peace. And okay. uh, I, and in the lead up in the lectionary of the church. So the readings that we use in the Advent season, the four weeks leading up to Christmas, we, we have a heavy emphasis on the prophet Isaiah. And the ninth chapter of the prophet Isaiah has that, um, you know, if you listen to Handel's Messiah much, right? Wonder counselor and prince of peace. So right. the, there's a lot in the scriptural and artistic tradition around Christmas of Jesus who has arrived on the scene, the prince of peace. Why did these mysterious figures from the East bring, bring gifts to him? Uh, he's a king of sorts, but what kind of king? Well, he's not an earthly king. It turns out he's meant to be a king whose peace 
is reconciliation. So again, to me, these themes are all inseparable and right there. So if you want to call it peace, right relationship, right, uh, the, the swords being beaten into plowshares, that imagery from Isaiah is part of the Advent lectionary, part of this new kingdom that will be brought about in the fullness of time. It, it arrives with Christ on the scene as God become human. Mm-hmm. So, so it's that inbreaking into history uh, that technically, of course, happens with the Annunciation and the conception of Jesus, who is in his mother's womb, and that's recorded in Scripture, right? He's, he's there when she visits Elizabeth, and that's why John leaps at the presence of the Savior. But, um, uh, but we still think, even though we believe in life within the womb, and it's, it's, uh, that's a scriptural thesis and not one that has to do with today's politics, the birth is still a significant event, right? Birth was, of course, an even more risky event for a mother in the ancient world. This birth was fraught with risk in, in the Gospel of Matthew and uh, and and uh, shrouded in mystery. And so um, to celebrate the birth the way we ordinarily celebrate births on, on this planet isn't a surprise. But in the early church, certainly the first focus was on Easter. The first mention of the date for Christmas, I think, is in 204 in a writing of Hippolytus. And it was in the 13th century, in the 1220s, that St. Francis had a particular devotion uh, to what uh, now people who who, uh, favor that uh, Will Ferrell movie um, about uh, car racing, the baby Jesus, right? The emphasis on the baby Jesus, uh, I believe, comes mostly from St. Francis. Now, why would he have focused on the baby Jesus? Francis was, was a kind of uh, passionate, you know, not the bad sense of fundamentalist, but he wanted to focus on the concrete things in scripture, right? So scripture says, give up everything you have. That's what he did. And, uh, and, and in scripture, Jesus is God walking among us. Let's mm-hmm. focus on that, right? In the 12th century, he, he famously had, I guess, the first sort of live crash, the live birth scene in, uh, Greccio, I think is the name of the town. And, why the focus on that? Because here we have the approachability of God from the Christian point of view. So some years back, uh, a, a rabbi in New York, Meyer Soloveitchik, wrote um, that for Jews, study of the Torah is how you approach God. They reject, as we've already talked about, they reject the notion of incarnation. But for Christians, incarnation is the approachability of God. So that long period of alienation culminates in this defenseless baby and focusing on that, right, that takes you to some pretty high theological places. What does St. Paul say in the letter to the Philippians, with which you, you may well be familiar, right? In the beginning, uh, Jesus was God, but he did not claim godliness as something to be grasped at, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, even being willing to die and die on a cross. So there's the Christmas story and Good Friday, right? From Paul, who says Easter is what matters. If he didn't rise from the dead, then we're all a bunch of fools. So you can't separate out these concepts. They're in the earliest of Christian writings, those of St. Paul, they're intertwined. And over the course of two millennia, we've had time to sort of tease out a lot of richness. And in the 13th century, that's when Francis put this heavy emphasis on Christmas as a feast. St. Augustine uh, said that the, the date of Christmas was fixed in all likelihood. There are disputes about this. Some people say, well, they just ripped it off from the pagans. And there's some truth to to uh, changing from a winter holiday to this one. But St. Augustine said, well, in the early church, they'd have known when he died. And surely God would have wanted uh, uh, the bookends of, of, of the incarnation and the death coming on the same day. So if he died on March 25th, then that must be why he was conceived at the Annunciation on March 25th. 
And you just go nine months mm-hmm. forward because that's when he would have been born. And so that's what gets you your Christmas. So that's what Augustine, mm-hmm. now was he correct about how that date came about? I, you know, that's not known, but it shows that even in his very early thinking, you had to see these connections uh, theologically as inseparable. And then they just become, as a matter of course, inseparable on the calendar. Okay. Um, before we get on to another value I might associate with uh, Christmas, you, we, we, we've uh, alluded to birth a lot naturally, including virgin birth. Is there, is there anything you would say to people, you know, outside of Christianity who have no idea what we're supposed to make of this virgin birth thing, what its symbolic importance is within Christianity? I mean, we see it as essential to the incarnation, right? That the power of the Holy Spirit resulted in this unique, astonishing, scandalous, uh, in the sense of the stumbling block, right? That's what the term means, scandalon. I believe I'm not a scholar of the Greek, but I think that's what Paul's using. Um, unity of God and humanity, right? So this idea of incarnation, it doesn't work in a sense if Joseph is the father, right? So theologically, it's an essential concept. Um, it's argued among Christians, even whether it's foreshadowed in scripture, some say, avert, behold, a virgin shall give birth. Other scholars say, no, that really is best to just a young woman would give birth. Uh, so, uh, but the idea of the virgin birth theologically makes the most sense of the incarnation, that, that this is God taking up human flesh, Mary as the mother, uh, but, but Joseph as the adoptive father. Mm-hmm. Okay, the the other uh, the other value I guess I might have uh, thrown in there as as a fundamental Christian value uh, is charity. Uh, again, you have no it's trouble exactly locating where I was going to go. Okay, good. Well, so we're on the same page. My question is, uh, to what extent is this kind of a modern association? Again, obviously, you can locate that value in the story of Jesus in the Bible. There's no problem there, but there have certainly been uh, some kind of, you know, iconic modern works of art, such as Dickens' A Christmas Carol, that, that probably helped reinforce the idea of, of charity uh, being, uh, as being fundamental. Um, and as a, a certain kind Christina of- Christina anti- Rossetti, Love Came Down at Christmas. There's a, okay. a, a, a contemporary rendition of it by Sean Colvin that a lot of people really like. Um, again, uh, to me, it's natural uh, that these things come together. Um, if Dickens is looking at a cold world, right? So I don't know how you think about Christmas if you live in the Southern Hemisphere, right? Men, much of what we think of as the Western way of thinking about it is a Northern Western way of thinking about it. It's in the middle of winter. And this thing has happened while the world is silent and snowy and dark and here is light. And it's in the middle of winter and warmth has arrived. It's no longer a cold universe. God is not remote. He's come down to us. It is love in the manger. It is love incarnate, right? God who is love. This is a, a phrase that redounds through, uh, that is uh, resounds throughout the Christian scriptures and tradition. So uh, even if there are various times and places where that might get emphasized more or peace might get emphasized more or longed for more, um, they're all kind of inseparable parts of the same term. Why did, in that hymn in the Philippians, why did Jesus not see godliness something to be grasped at, but emptied himself. That self-emptying love is the the real answer to your question, what does one have to do to be saved? One has to embrace that, and to have embraced it is to live it. So if a person is living self-emptying love, 
one might say that then they've got Christ. Is it possible to live self-emptying love I was without about thinking to of say yourself as having Christ? <laughs> that's a pretty high bar. I was about to point that oh. out, but but go ahead. Uh, how it close is. does one have? I, I'm asking for a friend. How how close does one have to come to a life of consistent self-emptying love? Uh, See, I know, I know there's I, no answer, but th- no, there is an answer. But okay. it's it's a, it's an answer in the form. It's in a sense, it's the Christian version, maybe of Cohen's. Right? You've studied Zen Buddhism more than I have. It's, it's an unasking of the question. Jesus is asked this by lawyers all the time. They're good lawyers. Like, all right, I got clients here asking for a friend. What exactly do they have to do? Uh, well, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, okay, who's my neighbor? He unasks that question. The answer to that question is fascinating and ingenious. And he says, okay, there's a guy lying wounded by the side of the road. And a priest walks by. We would think he's saved, but he ignores him. And a Levite walks by. We would think in our tradition, he must be saved. He walks by. The Samaritan, the person nobody thinks is saved, who's an outcast, he takes care of him. Which one was the neighbor? He doesn't. So the, the answer to and he says, well, obviously, the Samaritan was the neighbor. To, to answer the question, who is my neighbor, is simply to answer the question, how big is my heart? Mm-hmm. So the question gets unasked because God's love is inexhaustible. That's what Jesus wants us to embrace. And every time we keep trying to say, OK, but how inexhaustible does it have to be? We can imagine him with his, you know, exasperated, like I'm telling you the opposite and you want to know, okay, I've gone this far. Must I go further? And the answer, unfortunately, is always yes. I describe this when preaching where I don't have to be particularly high minded theologically as Jesus, your best and most annoying friend, because he will constantly challenge you to be better. And it is always, unfortunately, in this life possible to be better or maybe fortunately, but we kind of get tired of it and would like a rest from being better. That is not a gospel value. Yeah. Okay, I'll try. If you insist, <laughs> uh, I'll try to do the best I can. The um, uh, so on this, I mean, uh, as I suggested, there's a related. I, I think this probably well, uh, again, I mean, uh, a close cousin of charity maybe is is a kind of well, is it anyway? You you often see a kind of anti-materialism message associated with a message of. Charity, you see that a little bit in uh, in a Christmas Carol by Dickens. You see it very much in the in the Charlie Brown Christmas special. I assume you've seen that. Yes. Uh, where, An- another of the answers from a law professor was uh, uh, "Gifts for Pretty Girls," which is Lucy's answer. <laughs> oh, is it? As she's yes, as she's with Schroeder. I had forgotten that, uh, but uh, I, I have only a dim recollection of that. I watched it repeatedly as a kid. I, I know that the culmination of it is what Linus reading uh, from one of the Gospels, reading yeah. the Christmas story. Um, but anyway, Charlie Brown is rejecting all the commercialism uh, right. with uh, and, and it is very much the idea of um, of a Christmas carol, I guess. I mean, part of the idea is also redistribution of material wealth in, in, in a Christmas carol. Give some of this. Please give some of this away. Um, but anyway, is that I, I assume anti-materialism per se is much more of a modern take, even if it is in a way the flip side of charity. I would think so. I mean, certainly, uh, I in in prior eras where Christians didn't have shopping malls and advertising and yeah. gifts and a focus on that. Now we say, oh my goodness, to our horror, we've become so consumerist. If there's one day a year that isn't about consumerism. It's when self-emptying love came to live among us. And what have we done? We've made it into the biggest shopping season ever. I mean, there's nothing Christians are better at than getting Christianity upside down. Well, it's a job somebody's got to do. The, uh, 
I want to, you mentioned the gospel of John. I just wanted to get into that a little because it's so, uh, it's so cosmic. It's so different from the other gospels, as you said. I mean, it starts in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Now you've already used the word logos uh, because the word that is translated as word uh, from the Greek is the word logos, which at the time uh, it, it it entered the scripture would have had a, a, a deep philosophical resonance. The, the idea of the logos was a notion in ancient Greek philosophy. It had to do uh, kind of with the unfolding of a logic or a, uh, it has to do with purpose, with reason, uh, with, uh, and, and sometimes with history as an unfolding of a purpose of logic uh, in Philo of Alexandria. Uh, you kind of get that. Um, and, uh, and, and anyway, so then it, it, it goes on and, and uh, you know, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So God himself is identified with the Logos. And then the Logos is also identified with Jesus uh, naturally, I guess. But what, 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 is the, what is John's treatment of this make you think of? Well, I mean, it's it's the seeds, right, of Trinitarian theology, right? We talked about how people find that baffling or, or maybe um, uh, offensive even. But um, Dorothy L. Sayers, in writing about the Trinity, uh, used the analogy of the mind, right? Then she called it the mind of the maker. And if I'm getting her right, the basic idea was, if we think of the brain uh, uh, as God the Father, right, then the, the uh, Jesus as the idea, the word, the logic, the wisdom of God, and then that's expressed by the power of the spirit, which we might say where spirit comes from, from breathing. Uh, so this is all analogy. It's not saying that that's these physical things are the way to think about God, but they're a physical analogy of three things that are absolutely united. The word that is spoken, the mind that produced it, the concepts that it, that it uh, elaborates upon, but they're also distinguishable to some extent. So they are both distinguishable in some aspects and indistinguishable in others. And, and so the emerging sense of what a Trinitarian God must be is what's reflective now. The word Trinity doesn't appear in the Gospel of John, but that's the beginning of that idea. Okay, how does it work that Jesus is the Son of God? This must be what John was thinking through and, and then poetically and philosophically elaborating upon it. Of course, as Christians, we believe under the inspiration of God so that the ideas come out as well as they do for that reason. But I think what you're seeing there is worked out in the tradition as Trinitarian theology. Yeah. I want to read just a little more because I just love the, uh, I love kind of the, the, the language. I mean, this is one of many uh, translations, of course, mm -hmm. uh, but, but uh, it, it alludes to, to John uh, the Baptist. It says he himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And then it's the word became flesh, the logos that is became flesh, uh, and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. It's nice stuff. So much more, uh, you know, abstract and mystical than uh, than the, the other gospels. Um, yeah. 
So uh, before I, uh, I ask you a couple of closing um, questions uh, that are in a way more mundane, what would you add, if anything, to what we, we've said about uh, the meaning of Christmas? Uh, I guess I'd want to go back to what I said about since since uh, I suppose everything I've said for any Christians watching or listening would be obvious. Um, if I if I am a pitch man for Christianity to those who are non-Christians or non-believers, you know, I, I was invited to do that just that thing at um, at, at uh, Trinity College Dublin. You know, I worked in Ireland for a few years and considered having you over there all pre-COVID and all that, but um, to talk about Buddhism. But I ran a center for faith and reason there, so. The Trinity Phil Sock, they have these Oxford style debates and they sometimes bring in outside contestants. And so I was brought in to defend the church and uh, against a litany of horrors, which Christians have, have done, of course, in Ireland, they don't even need to be named. Um, and of course it was many of these things that were said were true and, and horrible. And I said, you know, what we can say though, is that every one of these things that upset you about the church are the church failing to be the church, that all of the standards have come to us in the Western tradition, including hu treating human beings as equal in dignity. They can't be said to come to us. And I tried to provoke them a little bit. I said, for instance, some of you are upset with the church's treatment of gay people as not, not an equal dignity, understandably so. But certainly Darwinian evolutionary biology isn't going to have a strong place for non-reproductive sex, right? So like treating people uh, behaving that way isn't a Darwinian value if there could be said to be such a thing, right? So all these values. So a guy stood up after me who was brilliant, uh, you know, in this um, uh, UK and Ireland style of education and rhetoric that most Americans kind of admire, not just because of the accents. And he, he went through trying to dismantle my speech in many ways. And at the end, to kind of a thunderous reception, he said, and how dare Father Daly say that um, we get these values that the church has violated from Christianity when they are written on our hearts? And he was sitting next to me. He had been the student who had invited me and he was very cordial. We went and had some champagne afterwards. And I said, you know, that's a really brilliant um, uh, finish there. But the idea that these things are written on our hearts also comes from the Judeo-Christian scriptures and you will never learn it in a cardiology class, right? So the, the, the values that I believe human are written on human beings' hearts that Christians so often violate that it makes many non-believers think, well, the last thing in the world I'd be as a Christian, they are so judgmental, they are not charitable, they, they violate all of these things. Much of that is true because we are sinners. But the notion of the sin and of what is true, that's what's encapsulated in Christmas. It is self-emptying love that has come down. And when Christians are not living self-emptying love, they are betraying the Christmas story. So even as a non-believer and even as a non-Christian, one can be glad, it seems to me, that this is a day when almost all of the world stops its commerce and even some of its disputation. And even at times, it's warfare, that great story from World War I, right, where the, right. They, they had this The, the, uh, the German and, and allied uh, troops right. seeing a, seeing a, what is it, Silent Night they sing? They kind of uh together yeah, yeah. Uh, and i yeah. think they played games on the beach they had 24 hours or whatever they had yeah. you know ross douthat quoted i think it was saint thomas at the end of his sunday column and he said the best the most efficient argument for uh for christ being the son of god is that he changed all of human history without having any political power and he didn't seek political power he didn't seek wealth and there is no question 
that it's one of these lies. You might have similar things you can say about the Buddha, right? I'm not saying there aren't interesting arguments about other figures in human history. But the name of Jesus is known around the world, right? As someone put it on Twitter today, and even by people who have no moment for Christianity, when they want to swear or say something's really bad, they'll say, Jesus Christ, Bob, what were you thinking? Because they know it's this powerful name in human history. It's power, as Nietzsche noted, derived entirely from the perverse fact that he was powerless and loving. Uh, Nietzsche, it seems to me, drew the wrong inferences from that. But um, this powerless, loving human being, represented by this defenseless baby that we say is God, infinite and all-powerful, the logos from eternity to eternity, um, that's the message. And that seems like a good message if you just want to say, well, it'd be nice to have better symbols rather than worse symbols, even though I think it's all claptrap and the universe is cold. Um, uh, okay. But still, if the universe is cold, you're going to have some symbols that are governing. A symbol of self-emptying love as the most important event in human history is, isn't a bad one. Now, you've used the term self-emptying love enough that I want to ask you for uh, uh, just a, a hypothetical concrete example in real life. I mean, uh, obviously, you're saying Jesus was the ultimate example, uh, made the ultimate sacrifice. But uh, in our everyday lives, how would we know an act of self-emptying love if we saw it or did it? Well, I mean, we have a tradition of examining our consciences, right? Why, why did I do that? What was motivating me? And we have to hope that our motive is love of the other, right? That I actually care about you uh, and I'm doing this thing for you more and more, not thinking, what can I gain from this? Uh, and so, uh, you know, Human motives are always mixed, says in Jeremiah, more tortuous than all else is the human heart who can understand it. So we'll never fully understand ourselves. But to the extent I can, uh, I know that if I feel the love of my mother, right? So, you know, go and read something simple like Billy Collins's uh, The Lanyard, right? About how a mother has done so many things for her child, right? We have only imperfect analogies to that divine love, but the love of a mother, when it's healthy maternal love, seems to be that sort of thing. And and uh, I'd say that poem gives a wonderful encapsulation of our inadequacy in the face of such love as sons who might, I made this lanyard thinking we were even is the way that poem brilliantly finishes, right? Like mm -hmm. she'd given me countless meals and she'd wiped my forehead when I was ill and she had fed me from her breasts. And I made this lanyard at camp and thought that made us even. Um, so, uh, you know, there are the lives of saints, right? Maximilian Kolbe in the Second World War sacrificing his life so that another prisoner in Auschwitz could live and get back potentially with his family because this priest wasn't. That's an act of, of self-emptying love, we might say. Uh, look, when a family decides that on Christmas morning they're going to go feed the homeless, when they could sit at home in their pajamas and have hot cocoa and open the champagne early, that's self-emptying love. I don't think you have to think of, of giving one's life for another in World War II or on Golgotha as the only examples of self-emptying love. Parenthood, when it's genuinely parenthood, is self-emptying love. And a family going together to serve hot meals to the homeless on Thanksgiving or Christmas are about self-emptying love. People who take their time and suffer some ignominy or, or maybe even violence to march for Black Lives Mattering is an example of self-emptying love. Uh, you know, any time I can get out of myself and get past what I see as the difference between you and me, and a difference that I would like to exploit for my own gain, that I'm moving toward Christ's story and that story of uh, the Good Samaritan, right? What is the limit 
on, on who is my neighbor, it is the size of my own heart. And that's the, that's the, the logic of the universe. That's the logos. That's how we're built. And, and so we want to like, that's why the questions of the lawyers are so dumb. Why, how much do I have to live what I'm built for? Well, life goes better when you live how you're built for. We fool ourselves into thinking we can have it both ways, but that's, that's always leads to ruction, I would say. Okay. Uh, two final questions. One is out of left field. I'm just curious if you're uh, much of a fan of uh, uh, Pierre Deschardins, this uh, mystical uh, Catholic, uh, well, paleontologist, theologian, priest, whose work was for a time uh, I guess more or less banned by the church. Uh, he, he was writing a century ago. Interesting, you know, kind of mystical take. Uh, mm -hmm. he, he very much saw technologically where the world was headed, that, that, that we were building a giant nervous system for the planet. He, he, he integrated that into a theology, had a very optimistic uh, take on, on what that would wind up leading to. Uh, and I don't think we're there yet. Uh, if, 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 if I understand his vision of, 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 uh, you know, kind of a contagion of brotherly love correctly, I don't think we're there yet. I'm just curious though, uh, does, uh, are you much of a Pierre Deschardins fan? You know, I'd be, I'd be lying to say I've read enough to call myself a fan. I find the ideas appealing, right? I, I mean, I think if you, if you view them as more of an analogy, they're safer ideas from within the sense of like approved Christian doctrine, right? But yes, there's a, a kind of convergence that he saw of mm -hmm. the mind of God with consciousness in the universe mm -hmm. and that gift of consciousness. And I think there's plenty in that. I mean, look, he was a well-trained priest and, and a bit of a mystic. And sometimes mystical ideas the church can see as leading people to uh, not taking foundational truths seriously enough. You know, almost always when the church has accused people of of one or the other heresy, theologians who become really sticklers about it will say, you know, Arius wasn't actually an Arian. And that may be the church is trying to say, well, there's a certain misunderstanding that we have to guard against. And even mm -hmm. if it has said it in thunderous language of anathema, God always judges, including judging Arius and judging Hitler. The church tries to, to clarify what its view of the clearest doctrine is. But if one stays in the realm of the spiritual and the analogical, I think it's safe enough. And I think there's a lot that's very appealing in all of that, not least, as you suggest, because what can seem like a scary age of technology dividing us has, you know, conceptually the potential to be much mm -hmm. more uniting and unifying. And mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm for the optimistic. Uh, OK. Hope. The final question, of course, is what is your favorite Christmas carol? Favorite Christmas Carol is oh, he's probably baffled. I can if you want to stall, I'll tell you what mine is. Tell me what yours is. Uh is it is the actual title Oh Holy Night or Oh Night Divine? It's Oh Holy Night. Yeah, it's Oh Holy Night. Yeah. That that's I, that was gonna that, be my answer as well. Was it really? Yeah. Just 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 that. on musical grounds alone. It's just yeah. a beautiful song. Yeah. Uh okay. Well, that was easy. <laughs> no runner up. A little town of Bethlehem's nice. It is nice, yeah. Obviously, um, Silent Night and Jingle Bell Rock's got to be high on your list. Uh, no, that'd be over <laughs> there with um, Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer, I'm afraid. <laughs> I actually, you know, I'd encourage you to listen to this, Sean. If you Google the Sean Colvin Love Came Down at Christmas, her little spin on the Christina Rossetti, that's as among contemporary efforts, that would be uh, something I, I listen to at Christmas. I actually like, uh, I have to say, I, maybe it's just the nostalgia of my youth. But that uh, do they know it's Christmas still has emotional resonance for me. Remember that that was a moment of 
uh, of a Chardin moment, right? Where we were bringing the world together with rock music to care about uh, causes. I, I'm not, and I'm uh, not sure I know the song actually. Uh, so it was the, it was before we are the world. It was the okay. British led, do they know it's Christmas time at all? And it was to raise money, I think, for famine in, in Ethiopia, probably. Right? No, it's not so. the John Lennon. It's not the. Dun, 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 dun. No, uh, it's not the war I... is over chorus. If you want it. Uh, no, it had like wham and people like that. in it. I see. Uh, do they know it's Christmas? Let me, this was uh... so they say this is Christmas. I think the one I'm thinking of or something like that. So it was called Band-Aid. Remember, it was Bob Geldof. Oh, yes, yes. Okay. I was going to play it for you, but now you remember, so I won't okay. have to do the ad. So, yeah, that, that, that among contemporary things, I actually like the Band-Aid thing, which some people regard as hopelessly cheesy and sentimental, I suppose. I like the Sean Colvin thing, but Oh, Holy Night, yeah, for sure. Like, when you think yeah. fall on your knees, like, who doesn't want to fall on their knees at that point? Yeah, oh, it's so beautiful. Uh, well, listen, thank you so much. Uh, my condolences over uh, Notre Dame football team not quite making it into the college playoffs. It was close. It was very close. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm no longer as heavily emotionally invested in all that. I have some football players who live in my dorm. I'm happy for them when we win. It would have been nice to see them have that opportunity. So I won't speak ill of it, but it, it doesn't capture my heart as much as some other things. If I may be permitted a personal note uh, for, for a moment here, just to thank you to you, first of all, for having me here today. This was fun. I hope someone might find it useful. I hope you have. Um, I, the reason I know Chris Hayes, which sort of changed my life is I started paying attention to blogging heads TV a million years ago when wow. I was practicing law as, as a priest in Washington, DC. And it happened that I ran into Ezra Klein there who was on blogging heads. And I came to admire his work as an intellectually uh, uh, honest, uh, I'm, I'm lefty on lots of things on foreign po I mean, Catholic doctrine ha has to be on immigration, but but because of the abortion issue and, and my legal commitments, I more often am seen as a conservative. So I, I try to read people like Ezra, uh, uh, and and also I'm not secular, right? That's a certain kind of conservatism, one might say, with a small c. So anyway, I, I got to know Ezra, and we became pretty good friends. And he introduced me to Chris Hayes, and he said, oh, Chris is writing this book uh, that includes a chapter on the church. That was his Twilight of the Elites book. Mm -hmm. So I wrote a kind of scathing critique of that uh, uh, chapter for Chris saying he wasn't nearly hard enough on the church. And I think he was surprised that a priest didn't tell him he was being too hard on the church. And uh, and so he and I became friends. So like there's a whole little world I've become a tiny, tiny part of that I enjoy a lot. I've learned a lot from engagement with those folks. Uh, that's entirely because of the work that you do. And the other thing I wanna say about your work that it connects to Christmas is, uh, whether obviously you know it, I mean, you've got your whole meaning of life TV and you're constantly bringing Christians on, even though your commitments have moved into other directions and you have claimed that Buddhism is true. Um, <laughs> you, you were formed by a story of love that has clearly uh, uh, infected everything that you do. And even your exasperation and your swearing about the blob, which I find absolutely delightful, you can see that comes from your genuine caring about these Afghans whom you will never meet, as far as I can tell. And you're not like pining to get over to Afghanistan, but you wake up like angry that we don't care more about them. And that is really uh, a very Christian fact about you. And it's why I've admired your work and will always return to these conversations you have, because it, it comes out of your pores in so many ways. So your own viewers see the Christmas story at work in your formation even though it's taken you intellectually and theologically to other realms, uh, I, I don't 
mean it as any insult to you to say uh, that story. I think uh, I don't feel I don't feel insulted right. I don't feel insulted right now. So there you go. That's my thanks to you both for bringing me into this little world and and these friendships that I have somewhat through Twitter and otherwise these days, uh, but also for the work that you do um, in the non-zero newsletter and in the many ways that you write and have conversations trying to drag people to care more about folks they'll never meet. Well, thank you. I, I swear I did not put you up to this. I did not suggest that you say this, uh, but I'm very. And I haven't had any marijuana. You have not had any. Uh, although so I've, I've known it's a Catholics, better endorsement than Andrew Sullivan's. I've known Catholics who had the occasional beverage and it is after five. So you never know. But the uh, but, you know, it's funny. Uh, so you saw Ezra on blogging heads in early days, which I co-founded with uh, Mickey Kaus. Uh, Chris Hayes was also on. I think this was yeah. his first. I take full credit for his career. It, it was his uh, first, I think, video appearance. I'm That's waiting right. for my royalty check. Uh, <laughs> but as for the kind things you said about me, um, it, it, first of all, there there are mm, people who know me uh, who would say if I'm all about you know love and charity, I've got a funny way of showing it. Uh, but but to whatever extent uh, there's truth in what you said. Uh, I, I would have to give my mother credit and she would certainly give Christianity credit. Uh, she was uh, such a deeply charitable uh, person and a person of great faith as, as both my parents were. And so uh, she would uh, love to hear you uh, say it. And, you know, if, if your if your worldview is correct, she may be she may be hearing it. So uh, right. I, I want to leave that possibility. It's, it's another word that uh, it's a good place to finish because it's strange that we didn't mention family for Christmas so late. Because many people think of it that way, including, Absolutely. of course, the Holy Family, but uh, but their own families as well. So we hope that if anyone's enjoying this to this late moment, they're with their families at this time. I, I hope so, notwithstanding the challenges this particular year yep. uh, in, in gathering. Well, thank you so much, uh, Father Bill, and uh, we'll be in touch down the road. Thank you, Bob. It was a pleasure.